Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for tuning in and joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. I'm your host, Kate Sadler, and I'm in studio with my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. Welcome back for another episode. Indeed. <laughs> Recording in the landscape. Apparently, we are in the height of, well, yes, I guess this week is is the peak typically of cedar season mm. in Texas. Uh, mountain cedar. I'm not sure what the scientific name is, but mm-hmm. this was a new allergen season that I was alerted to. So <laughs> Right. Yeah, lots of Kleenex purchasing. Yeah, lots of adventures in the landscape. So forgive us if our voices are just, you know, slightly raspier this edition. Our editors usually make us sound pretty good, but <laughs> you never know. We'll pause to sneeze or something. We definitely get in the landscape and it's and we're yeah, often absolutely itchy eyes, Oof. possible sunburn. I mean, we're pretty careful, but there's like a getting in the landscape, there's like a cause and effect. There is, but boy, you sure feel like you're living life. But you're restored though. It's like relaxing. It's a good day. It is a good day. Yes. We're getting some nice weather. So we're enjoying it. Yes, absolutely. So today's episode though is interestingly, I was thinking of this episode in terms of the climate we used to live in up in New York state. Mm-hmm. primarily you still go back all the time so but the the colder weather is a good time to turn inward and to think of plants around the home mm-hmm. house plants the bane of many non-green thumbed persons existence <laughs> and again we're we're speaking for the northern hemisphere here we're still in the kind of the thick of winter and we won't be coming out of that for a few months now i did want to make you know a special mention of our listeners in Australia. We hope everybody's safe. We know Mm -hmm. that the fires there are really catastrophic. And although fire can be a natural process in the landscape, this is obviously far outside the balance that that would be beneficial. Yeah, our hearts go out to that. It's devastating. To the people and the wildlife and the landscape there and hope restoration is around the corner. So Mm -hmm. people are safe as possible. I guess it's amazing to us, I think, that we have listeners in all these parts of the world. And so it's, you know, it's almost personal when you think that somebody who's listened to your voice is out there and maybe facing something that you are sending well wishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's gardeners that I communicate with that that are in Australia. Yeah. Designers, horticulturalists. So let's shift to our topic today, houseplants. There are many podcasts that actually do this as a, an exclusive topic. So it tells you that the topic of houseplants is varied, it's rich, it's nuanced. If you want to be an expert in how to cultivate and maintain specific houseplants, go ahead and check out some of those titles. So we're just sort of throwing our hat in the ring in terms of the topic in the sense that we'd love to bring up a design aesthetic consideration. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we love to do on this show is talk about precedent setting, to talk about examples in the right. landscape, and that we may have the opportunity to visit people who are masters of indoor gardening. That it's actually... It's been going on for a long time. Yeah. You know, well, like one word that's fun to say is orangerie, <laughs> which I'm doing it with a very... with a, with a, I'm doing it like in an American way, not... A, a Rochester. <laughs> with no level of sophistication for a, for a beautiful French word. Yeah. So an orangerie is an architectural precedent. It's a building where you would store citrus, potted citrus trees, more or less. And so you see that in the country of France is 
is maybe the most well-known. There may be other places, of course, but it's a building where you would warehouse your citrus trees because they couldn't live outdoors in a temperate climate in the winter. Well, and I'm sure that actually reminds me that essentially the first indoor plant cultivation might have been the almost tied to the exploration and natural history movement in kind of the Enlightenment era of Mm. Western Europe in terms of European indoor plant cultivation, not Mm -hmm. to exclude any of the other major civilizations in the world for whom this was common. So we're talking about the orangery. I'm thinking in particular of conservatory gardens where it's in a greenhouse. So if you go to the botanical garden in Paris, for example, you have these large greenhouses with these exotics, quote Mm -hmm. unquote, which are actually plants that grow in the wild elsewhere in the world. Right. But to the people (laughs) who are cultivating them, it's essentially you're cultivating an exotic, something that's different from what you might be able to put in the ground outside. And so people who are, you know, looking at orchids and staghorn ferns, you used to have some of those, would have been doing so, I think, almost with scientific interest and studying and exploring examples of items that they may never have had an opportunity to go visit in the natural habitat. Right. It's very rich. They're like a a contemporary plant collector, Dan Hinckley, who's out of the Pacific Northwest. I think his house is on, overlooks the Puget Sound, if I remember correctly. So he's a contemporary plant collector where if you wanted to say visit Thailand, you want to cultivate a certain type of a mountain plant there. There's a protocol to go through. You apply to the government for a permit. You'd have a guide. And so there's plant collecting. It can be done ethically. And that is how some of these plants trickle down into when you go to your local neighborhood nursery or greenhouse and you buy a plant. At some point, it's fair to say somebody collected that seed in another country (laughs) and they have brought it back to their home country. And then that may have, that eventually trickles down to a house plant that's in, in cultivation. Well, just as a sidebar, I just sent you this story. It's from December 26th of 2019 about the world's loneliest tree in New Zealand. (laughs) Oh my God. It's from National Geographic by Dustin Renwick. And it's all about this tree, the single wild tree Mm. on a New Zealand island that could soon, according to the title, get some neighbors. Um, So the cultivation of plants has all sorts of implications. It's interesting to think that species that may be in jeopardy in the wild could benefit from this sort of scientific cultivation that, that we're alluding to. So it sounds like they were able to successfully propagate this tree finally from a cutting and oh, wow. maybe able to plant, plant some companion trees, which is really <laughs> lovely. And so along those lines, actually, it, interestingly, when they renovated the Cal Academy of Sciences, out in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, one of the things that they added was almost one of those giant terrariums, terraria, (laughs) um, with a rainforest inside. It's multiple floors. And so it's almost like like the apex of this kind of natural history movement where you're studying these foreign plants, these exotics, not to exoticize places where those grow naturally in this day and age. Like those are home to people every day, but to bring that into an artificial environment so that people can experience it in a unique way. So it's a very modern building. I think it's called the Osher Rainforest. Oh, beautiful. And and you can 
it has those levels. So you're able to get to the top and kind of experience the different levels of the rainforest. Because that's what's, if I'm remembering correctly, my forestry, the a tropical forest, there are, well, plants that you would cultivate in your house that could grow in low light. To some extent, there's an overlap. Those would be plants that would be understory plants in a tropical forest where it's pretty dark, pretty dense. You think of, if I think of a temperate forest, you think of a hardwood forest with maples, oaks, and beech. As that forest matures, there's not as much growing. There's not as many understory plants. It's not this incredibly dense vegetated area. Like a, a mature forest, an old growth forest is the word I was looking for. What characterizes that is that it's quite open. Like you're in a cathedral where there's very tall trees that produce a lot of shade. And so that's really quite a big difference. And so in the plants you would see in the tropics, that's more or less those same plants do well in an indoor condition that they can handle low light. Well, the lighting is one thing. Another example of kind of the cutting edge of indoor gardening that you mentioned when we were researching the program was the Amazon spheres that are, I think, up in Seattle. So Mm -hmm. that's a cold, I mean, the Pacific, talk about the Pacific Northwest is very rainy for sure, but cooler temperatures certainly than anything Mm -hmm. close to the equator. So light, yes, is a factor. And those understory plants, as you say, work well in the home because of that. But temperature is a factor. And what's interesting is when we were talking about this example in particular, you mentioned one special challenge that they had to overcome. And I'll be honest, it's the one challenge I have going through greenhouses and conservatories when we're visiting gardens. And that's, you get in and it's kind of cool. And in about five minutes, you're too hot. And it's like, okay, never mind. I don't, it's very lush. I'd love to spend time here, but I don't actually want to spend time here. (laughs) So what's going on there? It may have been in the American Society of Landscape Architects Journal. It was in one of my journals I came across. So they create these incredible greenhouses, these spheres, and it's a collection of quite rare plants. So there's plants that you could cultivate and purchase for your home. And then there's also within these greenhouses quite very rare plants that is almost like trophy plants. So what they found, they constructed it. I mean, more or less money was no object. It's this incredible outpouring, this architecture had to house these special plants. The temperature, the humidity and the temperature that are comfortable for people is quite different than what's comfortable for plants. And the plants, I don't know, plants were dying, but they were not thriving because it was set for what was relatively comfortable for people. And it's a pretty big gap between what's comfortable for these plants and for people. And so what they came up with, with the article over the period of it was definitely months, it might have even been years of fine-tuning this, is that during the day, it's set so it's relatively comfortable for people and the plants can exist. And as soon as, let's say it's between nine and four or some time period, it's comfortable for people. After that period, the thermostat goes into, into ideal plant mode <laughs> and the humidity goes up quite a bit and the temperature may change also. And so that way, these plants can survive and people can coexist with them. It's quite an intervention. It just shows you money's no object, unlimited technology. It's not so easy to have houseplants thrive. It's still sort of a a reminder that preserving and protecting plants in place to, to protect habitat is a lofty goal. 
maybe in addition to building fancy domes that house like what? i'm just sort of envisioning the you know a, a tree a tree grows in brooklyn kind of scenario where mm-hmm. all we have are some of these special plants inside giant glass domes which it's very cool it's very neat to be able to see them but i love again the story that you know reintroducing a special tree to new zealand is mm-hmm. the result of this cultivation and it's not just that we're trying to capture it and hide it inside these Correct. spaces right like the biodiversity having rich plant collections is sort of capturing biodiversity and over a period of time that biodiversity can help preserve mm plants that could be lost in the wild. So there is like a greater good. That is a great, a great point. So really some of that was just to allude to the fact that when we get frustrated that our plants don't survive indoors, it has a great deal to do with how those plants would exist in the wild. And perhaps there's, or is there almost like some species of houseplant that are better domesticated than others. Like we can have cats and dogs and occasionally someone will raise a wolf, but you're really treading on thin ice (laughs) if, you know, because there hasn't been that evolution of domestication. So, well, places, think of, you could just with a pencil and paper, write down the temperature of your house and the humidity, which you can find that out. And so there are parts of the world, like parts of Africa, I think it might be Northern Africa. Or maybe cent- there's parts of the world where there are beautiful plants grow and it's similar to an indoor temperature where it's like around 70. Like when you look up the tropics are from about 68 degrees up to 86. That's like the range roughly. So there are parts of the world where that, te- where that temperature exists and the humidity is pretty low. And so those plants, like the snake plant, which oh, is that like seems like it survives just about anywhere. <laughs> and so that's there's a man um, we can add it to the show notes. That's a plant collector. I think he's from the U.S. He travels to Africa regularly to collect different varieties, special varieties. And there's even a guide that I've corresponded a little bit. In, that's an African that you know takes some scouting for these to collect. So that climate. So there are plants that which don't mind dry a dry condition. And I guess, I mean, I think of the snake plant and it almost to my untrained eye, let's be clear, almost looks tropical. Like it is from a different, I guess, a different latitude. Correct. And so it has features to it that look indoor plant-ish to me. And yet I'm not trying to force low humidity on a plant that really should be in a tropical rain forest, which would denote, you know, right. a fair amount of precipitation and humidity. Right. So that's a plant. Then you know, another category is good to mention are succulents. So those, so one category of that would be uh, a jade plant. So where you imagine the leaves come in different shapes, but some of them are round-ish. And when you, when you squish them with your fingers, it's, it's thick, you know, it's, it's fleshy. And that's more or less storing moisture. And so those need a, a decent amount of sun, but since they're drought, they're drought tolerant. So there's ways, plants that are drought tolerant and are indoor plants, they're a little more foolproof. Plants that are, need high humidity, they need to be misted, need to be watered regularly. They're a little more challenging. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like having a, like a bonsai plant almost where it's a pet. You have to give it a lot of attention, which is not for the average person, that level of attention. <laughs> so why would we need plants indoors, especially if we have yards or even parks nearby? Is there a benefit to 
going to the effort of trying to sustain plants on the inside of your dwelling? A uh, good point. I mean, we're looking. I'm looking at the um, article from the National Institute of Health here. So plants clean the air basically. So air quality is improved by plants. And this article even says things like HEPA filters, other types of air filters don't clean the air as well as plants. There's things which even filters cannot get out of the air. Well, it's interesting. I have, you know, it's like any, I guess, scientific or health discovery that you see in the news. You'll see one article touting benefits to red wine and then oh, right. another article will be like red wine is the worst and so you're like wait which is it and of course it depends on study population and whatever but i think it's telling while there may be contradictory information about to what extent plants clean the air or which plants do the best even an organization like nasa mm-hmm. the national aeronautics and space administration is invested in figuring out whether plants are crucial for indoor health since astronauts are indoors pretty much 100% of the time, to be honest, especially if you're out (laughs) in space. So, or if, you know, if we ever make it back to the moon or to Mars, plants on board, I think are going to make a big, kind of a big difference. And so we're talking about air quality, but I think there is also, especially having done some apartment living in Manhattan, emotional, psychological benefits to having plants inside the home. And I could only imagine that being true in a space capsule that it's, it's reminiscent of terra firma, so to speak. Right. Now, the, it goes on to say about air quality, that poor air quality leads to all kinds of chronic issues, including asthma, and children are the most susceptible to these problems born of poor air quality. There's the psychological, there's the researchers, which we can cite the Kaplans, which is from Michigan, which are a husband and wife, they're psychologists. Uh, environment, I think it's environmental psychologists. Uh, we've talked about in the previous episodes, seeing nature, which could be a wild nature, even a design nature, which would, it would also include houseplants. <laughs> it reduces levels of stress, reduces blood pressure. It causes what's called restoration, where your, your shoulders drop, you feel, ha, ah, like when you look at a nice sunset or a nice vista. So even even very briefly, sitting in an office or an apartment or a home, glancing away from, let's say you're working on a computer, even just a moment glancing over at a beautiful houseplant that has health benefits, like psychological reduces stress. And it's, so that's why I guess it's Amazon of the spheres, right? So that, why would you go to all that trouble to create these buildings? Well, it's good for the employees. People are happier. They're better employees because of that. <laughs> Well, and we may be preaching to the choir a little bit on anyone who's found themselves to a podcast called In the Landscape is probably (laughs) already sold on the idea of plants. In fact, the more the better. So what are some practical tips that we can share first in terms of designing with houseplants? So that, you know, that's our particular focus as landscape as a landscape design firm and maybe slightly unique in terms of all the content that's out there about houseplants. So what are some design principles that we should bear in mind? It's similar to an outdoor garden. It's really the same principles, but it's just applying it to the indoor, the inside of the house. So I guess first would be a site assessment, which might sound, you know, sort of laborious, but what are the light conditions? Like the literature sites, like an Eastern facing window 
they're saying it's about the most favorable because it gets morning sun, a north facing window in the northern hemisphere, it gets no really no direct sunlight. So that's going to be hard to grow much. So what are the light conditions that influences the, the design? What's going to grow there? Having the pots themselves or the containers are important because it more or less becomes part of the interior architecture. So thinking holistically in a given room, how many planters are you going to have? Maybe not right away, but eventually. And thinking, is there a supplier? Maybe you want an indoor tree in a corner, which would help help soften a corner. Like a fiddle leaf fig is a popular one or a ficus tree. When you purchase the plant, similar to an outdoor plant, it's going to come in a container that's just barely big enough. And they almost always need to be what's called potted up, where you put it in a bigger container. So the planters themselves can be an amenity. It could be color-coordinated with the home, or it could be, let's say, a, a brass planter. It could be a contrast. The How su- do you know what size to plant up to? I have a feeling I would, on instinct, get something a little bigger. Is there like a rule of thumb for how much bigger to plant up? Oh, good question. The pitfalls, if you got, if it was just a little bigger, it's many plants would very quickly fill that. So it'd be sort of a waste of time. It wouldn't really be much of a benefit. If you go too big, like let's see, you get it five times as big as the plant, you know, you really want it to become big. There's going to be a lot of loose soil and that soil can say, can stay soggy depending on what kind of a plant it is. So knowing similar to an outdoor garden, knowing the vigor of the plant. There's some plants that grow pretty quickly and putting it, so this, the size that you increase it to should be based on the vigor of the plant. How would you assess the vigor of a plant? Researching species right. like that's just available. They could oh, say okay. this is a fast-growing plant. And then some of it, it's just going to be from personal experience. Because if you're in, in Boston, Massachusetts, that's going to be a little different than if you're in South Carolina. Even indoors, there's going to be different light, different warm and cool. So if I was doing it, I would suggest not buying plants for every room for the whole house. You can start small and then there'll be a learning curve. And then you can apply what you learn to future rooms or future plants. So you mentioned one of the great bugaboos, I guess, of indoor plants, and that's watering. The you go away for vacation and forget to tell the dog sitter to water and everything's dead. Or in my case, you neglect it for a little while it looks a little peaked so you start watering it with you know abandon and then it turns black and dies so there's the overwatering and the underwatering and you m- mentioned kind of sitting in water that drainage with indoor plants is hard because you don't want them to drain onto your parquet floor or whatever right so how do we know when to water what are good, some good just general tips for watering again i'm sure there are some resources out there for specific species that, that will help. And we can link to those. Well, getting, so I give the light conditions and then what the, what's the temperature going to be? The average temperature in that part of the house, that's going to influence how fast the, it dries out, how much it grows. There are watering meters where it looks like if it, like a meat thermometer almost, where you can stick the probe into the soil. You could even, on some house plants where you're really not sure, you just have a watering meter in the plant and you can <laughs> you can feel the soil with your hand different most plants don't like to stay wet but some plants do like to dry out between waterings like some of the succulents like the jade plant or similar ones 
Um, I've grown those over the years quite a bit. And in the winter, they might only need watering once a month where they really, really dry out. I mean, you want it to, my experience, more or less 100% dry out, like the soil's bone dry. And in that case, so there's some plants where you, the watering needs are relayed by the soil, whether it's dry or not. Others, like the jade plant or some of the other succulents, the leaves are firm when there's enough water and they become sort of limp. They start to become limp when, they, when it needs to be watered. And what, just when it barely starts to become limp, that's when you need to water it. Helpful. Okay. Now, one other sort of subtle indoor tip that might be useful for certain species is the concept that certainly some plants grow in stuffy conditions and are not ever touched by air, maybe on the forest floor, but a lot of plants do experience wind and rain and Mm. being next to each other and having their, they are physically responsive in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So is there something we should be mindful of when we're planting should we be planting in groups? I still think of the New Zealand tree, the lonely tree. <laughs> I know it has other plants around it, but <laughs> but to find out things like the secret life of trees that, you know, they're communicating with each other and stuff like that. And then probably, as you've noted in trees, tension, is it tension wood? Mm-hmm. Trees grow in response to the wind and things like Correct. that. So how much of that do we try to replicate in our own home? Do we try to get the windows open as often as we can or something like that? Air circulation is real important. There's every plant enjoys air circulation. Some will get diseases or insects if they don't have it. When you visit a public conservatory greenhouse, there's almost always fans going, if you notice. When I've lived in in homes where I've had lots of house plants over the years, having a fan going in the winter where it's almost always going. So it's there's not dead air. Plants get dusty. It's more or less like a piece of interior architecture. So dusting the plants, getting that dust off of them, spraying them or misting them. Sort of a tip to keep the plants thriving. What I like to do, which it might sound funny, but it's what you read about is if you can physically pick up the plant, if it's not too heavy, watering it even in the kitchen sink or in a bathtub. And so let's say the plant's a little dusty, it needs to be watered. You put it in the bathtub or a kitchen sink and you fill that container of the sink or the bath with water. So it's partway up the pot. And then in addition, then you water from the top. So you're watering into the pot on the soil. And then there's air within the soil. And that air gets exchanged. It's the air's forced out and you'll see bubbles come up. And at that point, you can also water the foliage and then it's, it's like giving it a bath. It's like a brand new plant. Hmm, air exchange is a nice idea. And um, I've even seen you essentially mulch dead leaves back onto the pot. Is that something you recommend oh, to right, help correct. Sort of preserve what moisture is there? Like it's, let's say it's a staghorn fern or a ficus. If it's a plants that have small leaves, I put that right on the base of the soil, like you wouldn't, like you'd see in the forest, there'd be leaf litter on the ground. If they're big tropical leaves, I cut them up like you would, like a salad, I guess, and and leave that as litter. And then, what about the soil? I mean, are there a lot of amendments you should be making? It sounds like you can't quite get away from, and, and maybe nor should you get away from the concept of 
relatively quickly draining soil. That's why the soaking is sometimes so beneficial because you really like if you just pour water over the top of a house plant, and this has happened to me where it like <laughs> then spills out from the dish because you think somehow it's going to fill the volume of water should fill the pot, but it's going through so quickly that it's coming straight out the bottom and, you know, probably bypassing most of the roots at that point. So um, how do you kind of get the right balance with your potting soil indoors? So there's like general potting soil that's going to have perlite, vermiculite, which is more or less particles that, that create air pockets. I think vermiculite holds moisture. Perlite is more or less, looks like white, like little styrofoam pellets. It's not, but it looks like that. So those, a potting mix, a general potting mix for your average plant is generally a good idea. Just regular soil like you'd have in your garden it's probably going to be too heavy and it would get compacted and there wouldn't be air, there wouldn't be positive air voids. Then there are special soils. There's like African violet soil. They're like for a staghorn fern, it more or less likes to grow in, in bark chips because it would grow on a tree. Orchids mm-hmm. or also, to my knowledge, are epiphytes. They would, in nature, they would grow on it. They would attach to a tree. And so those grow in bark. So the cactus, have a special soil. So it's the soil that the plant comes in when you purchase it. It might be the proper soil or it might not. So it's doing a little research. And so this, some of the higher maintenance plants, the soil is very important. It's not going to, the plant's not going to live if you don't have the right soil. Now, another technique you've used for watering for things like bonsai or orchids is the use of the ice cube. Oh, right. Correct. Just let it, slowly (laughs) melt over you know you're not trying to bring the temperature of the plant down it really is meant to melt and not you know impact it in terms of temperature but gives it this slow kind of delivery of water i guess right you're not over watering it's it's also a measured portion so you're not having to guess how much you're actually applying a good point now i mean i've had fellow gardeners that have been critical i've said oh when you, like when you buy an orchid, they'll say it's like an ice cube orchid and they'll suggest to use ice cubes. I've had fellow gardeners, friends that have said, oh, that's in nature that wouldn't have ice cold water, but it does seem to work. And like over the years, I've grown uh, Chefalera as bonsai mm-hmm. and I've used the ice cube method and it, it works. It's worked great. Yeah. I'm going to guess I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess it has more to do with getting the amateur in my case not to overwater the plant that it's not mm, correct. Like you're trying to give it like you know a nice cold beverage or you know, <laughs> right. iced tea with <laughs> a twist of lemon or something fancy and as long as you're not compromising the overall temperature you're probably safe so, so, so the amount of water it varies a lot from plant to plant i guess that's maybe a common mistake would be to water what are the orchid and the chefalera and the cactus and the African violet? Those have all have very different watering requirements. And so it's like we like to use human resources as an analogy. It's you're really sort of checking in with that plant, like, what do you need? What are mm. what conditions are advantageous to you? And that's all available. Well, that is a good point because I seem to recall you just sort of fill the watering can and you kind of go around from plant to plant and give everything water because it's when you've remembered to do it. It also reminds me of a design principle, which while you're not maybe grouping things quite as intensively as you might outdoors to make beds and things that look like they're overflowing, 
it doesn't necessarily have to be a hodgepodge of every single houseplant out there. There oh, is right. some repetition and continuity of theme mm-hmm. might be a good idea. And then you have groups of plants that have maybe like three different styles of care, but it's not 27 different styles uh, of care. You know, you, you're right. And you're trying to remember which is which and which nook or cranny you've put it in. It's just a thought that, that you're kind of, it's a great point. Yeah. Sort of, succeeding in terms of a design concept and then also simplifying it for yourself. So the plants, um, the plants look like they belong together, even Mm. if they come from different parts of the world. So it's plants with big, shiny, lush leaves, those having a cactus with big lush plants. It's possible to have contrast. It it could also look out of place and ecologically, it's going to be hard to maintain Mm -hmm. a plant that likes it hot and dry and one that likes humidity. Mm-hmm. So having, when you look at Architectural Digest, uh, Gardenista, both of those magazines have some nice articles on on houseplants. Bold, large leaves look great. I mean, particularly in, with modern architecture or if, if the space is a contrast, you know, like the very clean lines of modern architecture, the big, very bold leaves look great. If it's more traditional, like a more traditional home. In the Victorian sense, you might see large ferns. If the detail of the home is more ornate, the large leaves could could clash with that. So it's really the design of the plants. It would be the same as the outdoor of the home. It should be, contrast can be good, but then like you said, continuity. Maybe there's a type of a, of an ivy or a fern that you find that works well in your house. And that could be repeated in different rooms. And then maybe there's a very special tree. Like there's here in the, in Texas, there's an outdoor plant that, that variegated ginger that has these long leaves with gold. So there could be a focal point, a special plant that's maybe in a, in a sunroom or a kitchen in addition to that. And we've talked before about, as you mentioned at the top of the show, the orangerie, the, the concept of having indoor outdoor plants. So plants that are going to be indoors for a certain season and then make the transition to out of doors, which is a nice way to kind of bring the outdoors in and then and then segue your life into the outdoor space as the <laughs> as the temperatures allow. And we also want to briefly touch on the the beautiful work that's being done in a lot of especially civic spaces. I've seen um, mm-hmm. atriums in the middle of Manhattan or whatever All that right. have entire living walls. So that's a whole other style of indoor planting that, that many designers specialize in Mm -hmm. that it requires special care. Same with roof gardens, which isn't indoor per se, but is akin to that. So we may do a future episode on that Mm -hmm. um, touch base with some of your colleagues, but anything to mention about that for this episode, or is it something we should be aiming toward? As a developed world, I mean, it's the phenomenon of urbanization continues. More and more people are living in cities. So a green wall, a vegetative wall makes so much sense because it's instead of looking at a painted wall or a masonry wall, since we know looking at nature, at living plants is restorative, people, it makes you feel good. (laughs) So a green wall is a beautiful condition. It's Mm -hmm. something pretty to look at. It cleans the air. It doesn't take up a lot of space. I mean, to have, let's say you're in a winter garden or an atrium and you wanted 
let's say like about 30 feet, like you see in an airport sometimes, you wanted a tree that was, you wanted 30 feet of foliage, like a very tall plant. That's going to take up a lot of horizontal square footage, where a green wall could be 30 feet tall, and it might only take up 10 inches, 20 inches of depth. Uh, so it's, it's almost like a miracle for design to have all that impact, but it's, it, it doesn't take up the horizontal space. So one of the civic spaces that we thought of in terms of going to visit to see sort of indoor planting at its best, one of them you mentioned was the Ford Foundation's Social Justice Headquarters. It has an indoor atrium that was, it, the, the year of completion was actually last year, 2019. So this is new. Well, they, it may have been. For the planting. Well, they, they restored it. Ah, they restored. You know, we can look it up. It may have been Dan Kiley. It may have been the original designer. You can imagine an indoor garden goes through a life cycle, like any garden. And it, I think it was needing uh, updating. So the firm, I think his firm's out of, I think it's Miami, uh, Raymond Jungles, landscape architects. You know, did I haven't been to it yet, but it's been in all the journals and it looks amazing. Yes, and James Urban did the soil design. So we have Urban Jungle working on this project. <laughs> Those are real names. We're not making <laughs> so a brilliant, brilliant people. And yeah, the great. photos are just stunning. I'm literally looking at them as we're we're speaking. And it's hard to imagine that this is in the middle of Manhattan. It's just down the street from the Chrysler building. So it's like right in um, midtown. It's, yeah. And so. now that place is open to the public extensively. I mean, I think it's it's Monday through Friday, at least, I think. That's one nice thing about Manhattan civic spaces or like the requirements of a lot of the big buildings there is that they create these spaces mm-hmm. uh, that people can public spaces within kind of the structure of these private buildings. There's a lot of access to parks and green spaces within the city as a result. So a very cool part of New York. And you'll be there in February to give a talk. So maybe you'll have oh, a chance right. to visit this. It's, it's not too far. I think I'm giving, I'm giving a talk at the Rizzoli Bookstore on Broadway, on Broadway. which might be in the 30s. And that's mm-hmm. maybe like in the 50s. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah. that's like a nice brisk walk. In yeah. The, in February, it'll be pretty brisk. <laughs> but, uh, oh, that would be neat. So hopefully we'll get some photos up of that, maybe even from in person from you on mm-hmm. our Instagram. If you want to follow us, if you want more information about the talk that Charles is giving at Rizzoli Bookstore in Manhattan, feel free to check us out. Our website is kinggardeninc.com. And you can find the website for the podcast in particular at kinggardeninc.com forward slash in dash the dash landscape. Feel free to shoot us an email at connect at kinggardeninc.com. Find us on Instagram under kinggardeninc. Rate and review us if you like what you've heard. Um, Mm -hmm. We absolutely adore receiving feedback, even corrections. We're, we're humble enough to know that right. we are <laughs> we're learning along with the listeners. Totally learning along the way. This has been great fun for us. We get to research and learn new things for every episode. And so if we misstate something we think we've learned, we'd love to, to be told. Send us pictures of your gardens and uh, let us know if you have questions, something we haven't covered, but would like to hear in a future episode or even a specific question, which we can roll into our listener questions episode. Anything to close with? You know, like another space, which is in Boston, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. They got photos right here. Mm. So that's that has, I guess I would call it a, a Mediterranean or it's a classical European indoor courtyard. And so that has fern trees. There's a ceremony where they have, I guess it's sometime late, maybe spring, early summer. They have, imagine 
a nasturtium vine that is like 30 or 40 feet long. And there's a period in the spring where they, they bring a new one in and they install it. And that photographer, uh, Bill Cunningham, who was at the New York Times that would document uh, social events, I remember he, he would always visit. So these really special public spaces that have indoor plants, they're very well programmed. And there's a lot of attention you know, to, get the, to keep these plants looking great. There's a lot of attention goes into them. So there are plants for your home that are lower maintenance, though. But to get that really special, all these, you know, the special seasonality, it does require expertise. And, and what's neat about, I guess, houseplants in particular, there's a learning curve. So as you give it attention, you learn and you can improve as you go. Great. So I guess the way to end this episode is to say we hope you bring the landscape in <laughs> sometime soon and give uh, maybe your first house plant a try or incorporate some new house plants into what you've already got going and mm-hmm. uh, looking forward to another episode in another week thanks for joining us thank you bye bye